on this episode of This Calling. For the church to be able to say, no, 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 that's not how we do this. Everybody belongs here. Really, it was like wind in my sails. Welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to Greg Brown, a research chemist who became a priest in the Episcopal Church. We talk about his journey from Northern California to seminary in New York City, his first position as a priest in Florida, and then his return to California, to Southern California this time, where he serves as vicar of Church of the Epiphany in Oak Park. Here's our conversation. Well, Greg, hello. Welcome to this calling. It's been a long time since we have talked couple of years yeah. now, I'm guessing. Yep. You know, it's funny. I think the last time we caught up uh, in something in some form other than Facebook, uh, uh, I was probably just ordained a priest, a brand new priest, uh, living as a single person in Jacksonville, Florida, um, Jacksonville Beach, I suppose, working at a church there. And since then, I've moved back across the country to the West Coast, where I'm from, to California to LA uh, where I worked for a while at a couple different churches where I uh, moved to follow the woman I was dating at the time who we've since got married and had a kid to. Um, and through all those journeys and trials and tribulations, I've ended up uh, as the vicar of a, a medium sized uh, mission in the diocese of Los Angeles called the church of the epiphany in Oak park. Um, uh, oh man. You know, as the vicar, I am the priest in charge of a congregation, much like the rector, except that uh, we're a mission. So the bishop is really the, the rector of the church, um, which means every once in a while I get a call from the bishop uh, about something great or about something a little troubling. And I have to sort of get out of his way. Um, but for the most part, I, uh, I get to have a lot of impact in building relationships here at Epiphany in looking around and seeing, you know, hopes and, you know, things to avoid that people have. Um, and in just in general, trying to help the community thrive, um, you know, in a time and a place where not everyone goes to church, um, but in a time and a place where the gifts that a Christian walk, a Christian journey have to offer really actually could help a lot, um, a lot of people. Where is Oak Park? Oh, Oak Park is in what's called the Conejo Valley of the greater Los Angeles area. Um, it's sort of on the very southeastern corner of Ventura County, um, or the very western corner of uh, L.A. County. So uh, if you think about L.A., it's this big basin with this line of hills on the north end where the Hollywood sign is. If you go over those hills, you get to the San Fernando Valley, which is sort of like the valley, you know, valley girls and stuff like that. Um, uh, and if you go to the very west edge of that valley, there's a set of hills that lead up into a high valley, which is called the Conejo Valley. Um, Thousand Oaks is up here. You might remember about a year and a half ago in November of 2018, 
there was an enormous fire that swept from a place called Santa Susana, the Wolsey fire swept from Santa Susana down to Malibu. Um, and uh, it swept through Oak Park. And um, very luckily, Epiphany was surrounded by fire, but not lost. Um, you know, there's one little ding on a corner that we're fixing. Uh, and we lost a lot of landscaping, but we were very lucky um, hmm. compared to, you know, probably a, a dozen neighbors just, you know, in random spots who, who did lose houses. So, um, so those are three good locations to keep track of, you know, were where the fire was two years ago, um, and not where not very far from, unfortunately, the borderline shooting, which was the same day, you know, which was about twelve hours earlier. Um, were sort of on the on this mountain hill between the valley of suburban sprawl, LA, and the plain of Ventura County, where a lot of agriculture happens. Um, um, yeah, uh, which which puts us in this place of. Um, it's still very suburban, but it's also got some rural aspects to it. There's a lot of good hiking around here. And uh, interestingly, about 10 years ago, people at Epiphany really liked, were interested in wine and winemaking and growing things. And so they started a vineyard on our campus, the Red Door Vineyard. So every year we produce, I don't know, so about 3,000 pounds of grapes that turns into a few hundred gallons of wine. And um, some of which... Uh, most of which go to members of the vineyard. It's a co-op, but about 10% gets set aside for fun church events and also mm, five or six times a year as altar wine. So it's kind of this weird thing to have a vineyard on a church, but although mm -hmm. it's, you know, if you, if you roll the clock back 300 years, it's not that weird. It just is. Yeah. yeah right. I have a, a whole book uh, about um, monks, European monks and uh, mm -hmm. winemaking. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe I'll send that out to you. This is a whole yeah, heritage, a whole heritage. There um, is, there is, there is. Yeah, it's really cool. So when you and I first met, I was at mm -hmm. seminary at CDSP in California, and True. you had not yet gone to seminary. You went to general, True. right, out in New yes, York? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, what were you doing before, oh, before you went to seminary? It's, that's such a good question. What was I doing? Um, I, so all through my life, I have been a very curious person and have been interested in the natural world around me. Um, especially, uh, as I grew up and as I, you know, studied and learned, especially in things that are smaller than we can really see, you know, the natural world, world around me, you know, informs me with its beauty and sort of inspires me. But I really, <clears throat> especially in high school was taken by chemistry um, and so studied chemistry in college and then after college, uh, you know, entered the field, um, you know, working in labs. Uh, I worked in a refinery for a while, testing products um, that led to me working for a geologist and doing a lot of environmental work, cleaning up spills and stuff like that, testing soil to make sure it was clean. Um, that led to, well, I guess the way to say it is in 2000, just as night as 2000 was turning to 2001, I think. I really wasn't happy in that in that in that sort of environmental world. So I quit my job and uh, navel gazed and you know thought about myself for about six months um, and looked for a much more sort of chemistry focused thing and was able to fall into really by good luck, uh, you know however you want to say that. Um, a chemistry, a drug company 
um, that F, you know, where I was a temp for a while and then, then I became a permanent uh, employee uh, doing what's called medicinal chemistry. And what that means is um, we would take on a project for a year or two, you know, say this little funny enzyme that's overactive in, in cancer, or uh, we worked on multiple sclerosis, we worked on endometriosis, things like that. Uh, you know, try and synthesize a little molecule in a lab that we thought would really change the course of a disease, you know, that would turn into a drug someone could take um, as a pill. And so for five or six years, and this is where you and I got to know each other um, when that was, when I was working at Berlex, um, you know, we would, I, I spent nine to five, you know, in a lab or in an, in a, you know, conference room with people trying to figure out what the next good target was going to be. Um, you know, I, I found it really interesting. Uh, it certainly there's something neat about working in a lab because you do spend some time sitting at a desk, but then you have to go in and you have to stir things and you have to handle them. And, you know, there's a, there's a sort of physical tactile thing that happens. That's neat. It's also true though, that, um, you mix these two clear liquids together and nothing changes. It stays clear, but you know, something's different and you have to figure out what that is. You have to sort of, you know, get to the bottom of it. And so there's this wonderful, um, belief in something bigger than you can see that you have to have. And there's this wonderful curiosity about how things work that you have to have. Um, you know, uh, I think when we were spending a lot of time hanging out, um, uh, I was already starting to sort of scratch my head about whether I mean, I enjoyed doing that work, but sort of like, is this really the thing for me? Um, you know, I'd, I'd been a youth minister for a long time. I'd done summer camps and all that stuff, led them and, and been part of them. And so, the church was a very, yeah. So you grew up um, religious? Yeah. Uh, my grandparents uh, insisted that I get baptized and mm-hmm. they were Episcopalian. And uh, they, um, you know, we didn't go to church for about 10 years after that. <laughs> As I think, <laughs> like it's pretty common. And I think, I don't know what happened. I should probably ask my parents someday. Uh, I think that one of my grandparents must have just looked at one of my parents and said, you know, you, you baptize them and then you take them to church after that, you know. And so when I was nine <laughs> or 10, we started showing up at church. And I mean, you know, when I look back at it as an adult and as a priest, I realized that uh, whatever year that was, um, I realized we were church shopping that we would go to this one church and we'd come home and I'd be like, oh, why, why would we go to that? That's crazy. Because I was used on Sunday mornings to waking up and turning in the cartoons and raiding the fridge from whatever was left over from Sunday, Saturday's dinner and like eating and watching TV. And so going to church did not seem cool. Um, but uh, we went to, I think if I can, if I can kind of peg them, we went to at least two different churches in the Bay area. Um, one of them must've been St. Clement's in Berkeley. Uh, cause that's near where we lived. And then we ended up at St. John's in Oakland. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we built some good friendships there, some good, you know, long-term family relationships there. Um, part of my life story is that, um, I did not fit in super well in schools. Um, you know, for a bunch of reasons, and that's a different podcast probably. Uh, but, you know, Sunday school and church youth group and stuff like that were places where I really did. And it wasn't that I fit in better than other people. It's just that the purpose of those things was that everyone was welcome. 
And so, you know, think about, I don't know what, what high school was like for you, but think about the sort of average, you know, high school experience of cool kids and, you know, not fitting in and stuff like that for the church to be able to say, no, 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 that's not how we do this. Everybody belongs here really was like wind in my sails. Um, and so I became a deeply faithful, you know, Christian, deeply faithful Episcopalian, you know, I don't know, in my teens, um, it really meant a lot to me in high school to be part of this thing that welcomed everyone. Um, and so that stuck, you know, I, as I think happens a lot in our faith lives, when we get something out of our journey, we try and give it back to others. And I kept, you know, leading youth groups and running summer camps and stuff and doing weekend retreats and stuff like that. And so after coming back from college, you know, I would, I would get my three meager weeks of vacation and one of them I would go be a summer camp counselor on. And my coworkers would be like, what, what are you doing? Why don't you go like, you know, go on safari or go visit somewhere or just go hiking or something. Why would you go be a summer camp counselor? And I'd be like, cause it's great. I don't understand why, what do you mean? Um, uh, there's, there's a story I tell a lot about um, my time as a chemist that goes like this. Um, when I, when I started as a medicinal chemist, I did not have an advanced degree. I just had a bachelor's degree. And so the under, but they really liked me. Um, and so they really were purposeful about hiring me. But what they said was, you're going to have to be an apprentice here. You're going to have to, um, you're going to have to really learn on the job a lot. So ask lots of questions and, and just jump in and we'll help you figure it out. Um, which, which was really wonderful. It's, there's something great about learning from a fire hose like that. Um, and so, I don't know, in my first year there, something like that, I, uh, I was working on something and I had the next step was in front of me and I thought, okay, I'm not sure how this is going to work. Um, and it was sort of getting to the end of the day, it was four o'clock on a Friday. And I went to my boss and I said, Hey, I'm going to do this, you know, thing. And Danny said, uh, I don't know if that's, Hmm. You know, I don't know that much about that chemistry, but John down the hall does. Why don't you go talk to John and just ask him what he thinks about that? So I walked down the hall and I, you know, drew it off on John's whiteboard and said, this is the chemistry we're going to do. Um, is that going to work? Uh, I don't really know that much. And John sort of scratched his chin and started drawing on the board after a minute or two. And in five minutes, he had answered my question. And I wish I could remember, it would make the story better whether I could remember to remember that John had said, that's going to totally work or that's not going to work or whatever. And I thought to myself, all right, 410, great. I'm going to go into the lab. I'm going to do this thing and then I'm going to go home. Great. And John took a deep breath and kept talking for another half hour. And he elucidated all these beautiful, beautiful uh, subtleties uh, and transitions. Oh, yeah, if you wanted to, you, another thing you could do instead of doing this chemistry, you could go backwards. You could go the other way. And it would be really hard. This would be a step that would be very tricky. And then this other thing. And um, <clears throat> yeah, 30 or 45 minutes later, he came to a resting spot. And I thought to myself in the middle, and it's all I could do to be polite, um, to not run out of the room because I, I wanted to go home. You know, I wanted to go out for a beer or I wanted to go see a movie. I don't even know what I had planned that evening. I just wanted to sort of finish the conversation and do check off the things off the list and go home. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure, I hope I was, I hope I was polite. I'm sure I was restless, 
because the whole time I thought, why are we talking about this? And it wasn't until I walked out of the room that I realized that he was fascinated by these things. And I had been interested about those things. And I had confused the two all my life that I had really thought to myself, chemistry is fascinating and it's interesting. There's a lot of neat things that, that you can learn about chemistry and about the world through chemistry. Um, but meeting someone who could talk for an hour unplanned and not blink an eye and still be deeply interested made me think, just made me realize that there was a, the scale went higher than where I was. Yeah. And so I didn't, huh. the, the question didn't form itself in my mind right then, but the, maybe the, it was on the tip of my tongue. Well, if, if he's fascinated and I'm interested, what am I fascinated by? And right in discernment language and church language, we would say, what is that? What is that calling that is put within me? You know, That's that a really be, good question. That's a really it? good question. Isn't it? And, and I think we get our scale wrong all the time, unfortunately, because we're willing to, I mean, and you know, I have had lots of jobs like this in my life. We're willing to show up and start at eight and end at five and take an hour lunch and generally enjoy the people we work with and, he asks some challenging questions once in a while, but mostly just sort of throw the lever and, and get the work done. And then we go home and we get, we get all this time to ourselves and can do whatever we want. And we feel like that's balanced. And it is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful balance to that. There's something, there's something wonderful about five o'clock on Friday. When, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Ah, yes. Um, and I, and I, and I mourn a little bit that not having that these days as a priest. But uh, except maybe I guess the Sunday afternoon nap maybe is 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 as yes. sweet as that. <laughs> but so uh, did, did you see so, chemistry yeah. as a lens into creation into God? Uh, did chemistry have a theological side to it for you, or was it? I mean, in a in a yes and no. That's a that's a really good question. Um, it didn't in the sense that while you can take chemical um, you know, analogies and, and make them spiritual, um, they're not, they're, that's not inherent to them. Um, and yet there is something beautiful about the way the world is made. And there's something about chemistry and really all of science that tells me that it is way more complicated than I can understand and so much va- more vast than I can appreciate. And, all I have to do is just keep asking questions and learning a little more every day and I will get closer to it. And, and that, you know, to me is a spiritual state sentiment the, the world that God created is so much bigger and so much more vast than I can fully appreciate. And God really is so much more vast and more full than I can appreciate that. All I have to do is just keep asking questions and trying to get a little closer every day and I'll get there. Right. Yeah. Um, the curiosity of the best scientists, the thing that attracted me to science and the thing that resonates with me in science, that curiosity, ah, what, what happens when I do this? What is behind all this is in my sense is, is in, in the sense that I understand it is a curiosity that deeply spiritual people have too. They use very different idioms often. And, yeah, and, and some, some people uh, perceive that there's a, um, an irreconcilable gulf between science and religion. Um, I guess you are not one of those people. (laughs) I am not one of those people. (laughs) Um, And I think that it's because we become internally doctrinaire 
especially the scientists, but, but, but even we religious people do too, that our idiom is the only thing that could describe everything. Um, and that there's nothing outside of our idiom that could describe anything. And, and it just, uh, and I don't mean to be sort of like, well, everything, the rules are all gone then or anything like that. Um, but it does seem like, you know, and I've, well, it does seem like in science, if you are doctrinaire to the extreme, you've just boxed in this world that is so much more creative than you could ever imagine and beautiful and complex. There's this wonderful moment in the history of science about a hundred years ago where uh, phys physicians, uh, not physicians, physicists, excuse me, um, were like, hey, you know, look at all of the stuff in the world we've figured out. There are these six weird, funny problems that we haven't quite solved with equations yet. Um, and if we just, but we're going to just sharpen our pencils and we're going to get, you know, we're going to get the decimal point down far enough and we'll have figured these six things out. Um, and what came out of that is the, the quantum mechanical revolution, you know, this whole world underneath what we see, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, which is different from that, but was part of that movement. And it basically was the uh, presumption of like, we can just, we can just engineer this and we'll be fine being thrown on its head by the world being bigger and more complicated than we ever could have imagined. And so it's not to say that science can't describe everything, but it is to say like everything just is surprising more and more every day. And so I, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think they're not reconcilable um, in part because it's pretty obvious that when you drop a ball, it goes down and hits the ground. Right. Um, and yet, there's this beauty inside of creation and there's this spirit in the world that are, that's also irrefutable in my experience. And you couldn't like, I, I can't imagine how they would be at odds at some level. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of that, that, that has always been my sense. There was never this moment where I was like, Oh, I can't be a scientist anymore. I have to be a faithful person or vice versa. It just always was trying to figure out how the world worked and what was behind it. In this search for the thing that fascinates you, yeah, and and um, you know, <laughs> when I tell that story about about the answer that John gave me, I usually say, I you know, at the end, I say, I well, so I went on a quest. You know, he he could talk for an hour and bore me to death, and, I, and so I went on a thing like, well, what can I talk for an hour about and bore people to death with? And I found the church. Ta da! No. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it is, you know, it's, I think it's beyond fascination. I think we find this place in our lives where we are most fully alive, where we are really animated in that, in that deeper sense of that word uh, about some things. Um, and sometimes it's sports and, you know, I don't know what you do with that. Um, and sometimes it's politics and I don't know what you do with that, but there are times where the gifts that we have, um, and the task we are put to combine in a way that really fill us with life. And that's what I saw in John in that moment. He was animated in a way that made him really himself of like as full as he could have been. And I longed for that experience in my life. Um, you know, and, and I think without theologizing John's life, I think we would in the church say that was a moment where, you know, John was full of the spirit speaking wisdom or, or something like that. Right. And so all I wanted to do was find the gift of the spirit that I had and, you know, unlock it and let it flow out of me. Um, and, and I found it more, but I'm still looking too. So, you know. 
So what did you find? This was the process of what, what wound up yeah. in the priesthood, but obviously, you know, you didn't just leap right from the lab <sighs> from, uh, to the altar. Yeah. It took, it took years. Um, and some of it was nervous questioning. Um, you know, there was more than one moment where I would be, you know, somewhere sitting with someone in the quiet, an old friend or a mentor, and I would get the inkling, like, maybe I should ask about this church thing now. And the moment would kind of pass and I, and I would have missed the opportunity. Um, uh, but uh, it was a lot of expanding the different ways I, ch- I served in the church. You know, I began to be a liturgical servant. I began to, you know, I did EFM, I served on the vestry and just tried out different windows of lay mission, you know, of lay ministry to see what really resonated with me. Um, at that time, St. John's was having a real renaissance and through that renaissance had created a discernment community, a team of, I don't know, a dozen people or something who were really gifted at, in a sort of Parker Palmer style, Quaker style, listening for gifts of the spirit and listening for movements of call. Um, and so I helped them with them. I worked with it. Uh, I worked with them is the way that should say. Um, on, you know, with, a, with a, a bunch of people, um, some of whom were discerning calls towards ordination, some of whom were discerning, you know, a call towards missionary work. Um, you know, we even worked with someone who was discerning a call towards work-life balance, you know. Um, those were really fun, rich conversations, and they taught me a lot about listening for that jump of the spirit. Um, and And then... Um, and this is probably right around the time you guys were graduating um, or maybe a year before. Then I, uh, then our company, the company I was working for got bought and we all got laid off and we were given, which, which, you know, like, Hey, you know, some kind of transition is going to happen, right? (laughs) (laughs) Change is going to happen. Right out of the nest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, we were given uh, some severance, which was nice. It was very generous. And we were given some time with career counselors. And I think I also, for the second time in my life, bought that book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Uh, if you know it. Huh. And worked, which is a, which is a career discernment um, work written probably 35 years ago at this point by an Episcopal priest. Um, and in working through those exercises and then talking with the career counselors, the church kept coming up as this, as this love of mine and, you know, working in it was important to me, taking part in it and supporting its life. Um, and even leading in it, um, walking with people upon the path that they're on. Um, and as I, and so once we got laid off, I sat down with the discernment committee and asked them to discern with me. Um, and the first nine months or something, we just, sort of discerned every possible thing, you know, like, should I go be a doctor? Cause there's this medicine and people thing, you know, um, should I, you know, like list all the possibilities. Um, and I think when I, the minute I asked, they sort of were like, Oh yeah, you want to entertain all the possibilities, huh? Any single one, anything's on the table. Okay. And they looked at each other and figured that I would figure it out sooner or later. Um, in fact, in fact, one of them even said at the end of the process, like, 
we sort of were waiting for you to figure it out. We knew, and we just let you talk long enough to, to get to it. Um, as we talked, I would tell stories from my life, which is, I think, a really good style of discernment. You know, moments where I was really full, moments where I was most alive. And the pattern that I kept looking back on, not having realized in the moment, um, but looking back on, was that there was a moment of conversation about faith that was important to me of using my voice and my mind to, you know, talk about theology and about life. Um, and that there was also a sacramental moment to that, that there was, you know, taking something inward and representing something it with something outward, that there was some draw towards the Eucharist, that there was some draw towards absolution and forgiveness, that there was some draw towards blessing and towards, um, you know, baptizing people, marking them at the beginning of their life and at the end of their life. Um, and it took a while to kind of grind that language out, right. To, to take the raw materials and, and get it to, um, you know, get it to where it made some sense. Um, but they were very patient with me. Thank goodness. Um, and never, never, gave me any shortcuts, which I appreciated because it meant that when I got there, it was real. I was like, Oh yeah, that's really me. Instead of this is an answer I borrowed from someone else. And, uh, so I entered that discernment process that, you know, well, that is, you know, great and complex and good and bad in some ways. And, uh, you know, this, this is a bonus story. Uh, through that time, I didn't, uh, I, could, I knew that the discernment process was going was to take a couple years. And I knew that having just been laid off, I couldn't not work for two years or whatever. And so I started looking for a different job and found one um, that was not great, but was good. Um, certainly paid the bills. And uh, in, in the middle of this discernment process, before the weekend where uh, the diocese was going to interview us and decide whether we were going to be postulants, um, our company decided, the company that I was working for then decided that uh, they were going to buy a different company and that all of the people in my arm of the company would have to apply for their jobs and they were going to only accept half of us. <laughs> and so, oh, wow. yeah, oh man, it was crazy. It was, uh, <laughs> and so I had to make a choice two months or something before this discernment workshop about whether I wanted to apply for this job and stick with it or whether to just say, hey, let's just see what happens and let it all go and trust. And uh, it was a rough decision. I was not excited about, you know, not having a job but uh, and taking that risk, you know. But I trusted that the discernment was going to be, you know, healthy and true and trusted that the sort of the discernment we had done to that point was healthy and true. And so um, luckily, uh, a few months after deciding not to apply for this job, um, that I had and, and uh, the discernment weekend, you know, was, was great. And they invited me to continue discerning um, by going to seminary. So yeah, I went to general in New York um, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And, so when uh, you, yeah. when, when you moved into this phase where the question of the priesthood was on the table in front of you, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. what you were examining and playing with. Yeah. Um, what were your emotions doing? Did you ever, did you think, wow, this is great. Did you think I'm not worthy of this? Uh, this yeah. is uh, lunacy, but I I'll see it through or a mix of all of those things. Um, I think 
it was a mix of all of those things. Um, there was certainly some excitement. Um, there was certainly some relief of like, oh, thank God, I don't have to sort of fake it anymore. I can do something I really love. Um, uh, you know, I knew that the church was a complicated and hard world. Um, and that, and that, that had some advantages and some risks. Um, and so, uh, but I don't think that I, I don't think that made me shy away from it. Um, uh, Is that how you'd come to see the, the chemistry work that you were faking it? I don't know faking it, but like, well, so the job that I took after the chemistry work, I was a project manager for an IT group at a oh. big drug company. And it really was something that I, I took so I could pay the rent. And I was, gotcha. you know, I was, I was reasonably successful at it. Right. Like, but, um, but I would not say I thrived at it. It also didn't hurt that it was 50 miles away from where I lived. And so the commute was rough and I probably did it for yeah. two years or something like that. It was, ugh, it was not fun. 50 mile commute in the Bay area. Yeah. Across a bridge, man. <laughs> it was crazy. I don't know why the, why I said yes, you know, um, but, but I, you know, Paid the bills, so there's something about that. Um, here's here's w- when I really was convinced. Um, I was in this discernment meeting um, with this committee, and I was talking about something, and I'm sure just spinning up into the ether. Um, and one of the beautiful people on our discernment committee uh, said, oh, "Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa! Let's just calm down for a second. Why don't you just close your eyes and just get into your body?" Um, and, and so I sort of calmed down, I stilled myself and, um, she said, all right, I want you to think about pictures of you doing everything that a priest does, visiting people and baptizing and being at the altar and preaching and, you know, presiding over people as they are put into the grave, all those things. And I just want you to feel, pay attention to what's happening in your body. And, um, it felt like, um, felt like my body was becoming more alive. It felt like I was fuller than I was before. Um, you know, it felt like I was more empowered than I was before is, is maybe a way to say that. And she said, all right, all right. Okay. Now step back from that. And I want you to sort of reset. And now I want you to envision yourself doing everything in the world you, you want to except for those things. And it was like I was, and when I did, you know, it's like my body sort of closed in on itself. It sort of shrank. It became less, um, and the, the, you know, it was less energetic and less powerful. Um, and when I opened my eyes and shared that, the, the group was like, yep, 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 yeah, that's, I mean, you know, does that convince you now? Um, what it became for me was a, a sort of litmus test of, you know, I don't know, spiritual animation or, or something like that. But the, 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 I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not a big charismatic, but it really did feel like the spirit was moving in me in that moment, you know, mm-hmm. enlivening me and bringing me towards fuller life in one direction. And in some ways deadening me and bringing me towards a lesser life in the other direction. And I don't know that that's the way we should make every single determination in our life. But I think, you know, when we get down to discernment, when we get down to vocation, we get down to calling. That's what it should be like. That our calling really does unleash this greater life inside of us. This we feel fuller and more energized and more 
um, animated. Um, and when we don't, we feel less. Um, so it yeah. reminds me of that. Uh, was at the very end of Deuteronomy where Moses offers uh, the Israelites the choice between life and death. Mm-hmm. I don't have it all memorized, but nor I. Um, you know, he's there on the the with them on the border of the Holy Land, and he says, yeah. uh, "You know, we've come this far, and now this is the choice you have to make." And and it sounds as though um, the movement of the spirit in your own soul was direct, was showing you those two paths. One is, I mean, maybe a little dramatic to call it life and death, but sure, liveliness and and a deadening. Yeah, um, those are definitely real, and yeah. and I think they, oh. if it, you know. To me, it also echoes, you know, the Magnificat, like I became greater in one way, not more, you know, more magnified, not as in reified, but just sort of enlarged in a sense, you know, bigger yeah. and more whole. Um, and the other was lessening. Um, but, it, but I think it, it definitely is, you know, life and death in, this, in the same way, too. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So off you went to seminary. Now, you were living yeah. in the East Bay. And there's mm-hmm. a perfectly okay. good seminary <laughs> uh, right there. Yes, um, yes there is. You, and uh, this, so, is, this, is, this becomes inside baseball at that point, right? Um, well, sure. The yeah. question is, why yeah. wouldn't you go to CDSP? Um, yeah. and, uh, and, I, and I looked at it and, and liked a lot of the professors. Um, uh, and was walking around thinking of the churches near CDSP and thinking that I knew really each one of them and their character and their spirit. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, um, that it was going to be hard for me to find somewhere in the Bay area where I didn't already have some like, you know, preconceived notion about it, even if it was wrong you know, my vision of that church on the corner or the one that's on the South side of campus or the one that's a couple miles North, you know, my vision of those churches fair or unfair was already formed. And that, that to really be new to really dive into vocation and formation, I had to go somewhere where I didn't have all those, you know, walls up or blinders or whatever. Yeah. A new Um, beginning. Yeah, it sort of was a new beginning. Um, it, it, you know, it didn't hurt that it was exciting to think about New York City. Um, it didn't hurt that, uh, that, you know, there was this energy in my life around um, liturgy in the sense that I loved um, worship services and I loved Compline and I loved... Um, even just, you know, at a summer camp, sitting around the, the pool with a bunch of candles and, you know, saying Compline together, right? Like, like I loved what worked about this, what worked spiritually about those things. And so when I visited General, I thought like, well, they, off, they do things awfully different than I do, but maybe I can learn some language that'll help me make sense of why the pool and the candles works just as well as the beautiful chapel and the incense. Um, and and again, it didn't hurt that it was in New York City, which is a pretty, which is a which a place that I find a lot of fun and a lot of energy in. Um, 
so yeah, it was a, it was very hard to choose to discern where I was really going to do the best and gr- thrive and grow. Um, you know, CDSB had some real strengths and some things that were really exciting to me, but it just, it just didn't feel like it was going to be this new place. It was felt like it was going to be the same old, same old, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that was particular to me as someone who did a lot of work in the diocese of California and had, you know, done a lot of, you know, had shown up at a lot of different church meetings at a lot of different parishes in the East Bay. I think if I had been from anywhere else, it would have been, been a lot different. So, um, and, and I had the, as a single guy, had the flexibility of sort of just going anywhere. I think the Bishop was very surprised though. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, I, I grew up in Massachusetts and I, when yeah. I did, uh, when I graduated high school yeah. and uh, was looking around at, at uh, places to do my bachelor's degree, I went out to California, yeah. um, to Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. My, my grandparents were living an hour away in Monterey. So it's not like yeah. I was completely remote, but right. I thought, you know, I had this opportunity to, um, you know, as my dad pointed out to me, like, yeah, I was going to university. I might as well see some of the universe and just, you know, <laughs> go somewhere completely new and learn yeah. how to, how to live in a whole new environment. Yeah. And That's, I loved I, it. Yeah. I, I dig that, man. I, there's something about the adventure of a new city that is pretty fun. I think I don't like it every six months, but no. especially if you're going to learn something, if you're going to grow, you know, jumping into that and and doing it somewhere you've never been is, I think, a really valuable thing. Now, of course, I've got a wife and a son and a mortgage now, so yeah. maybe the yeah. world would be different. Um, I was very lucky, privileged even, to be able to say, I don't know, anywhere in the country. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a, in the Episcopal Church, that's a choice that's harder and harder for people to make. Um, so, You think so? Uh, it sure seems like it. Um, you know, uh, we could go into the inside baseball of how our seminary is doing. Um, that's a different podcast probably, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the sense that I have is that, um, fewer seminarians go to Episcopal seminaries. Um, mm. more of them opt towards, uh, a local option somehow, you know, either, a, either some local other denominational seminary to local to them, or like in LA, there's this um, uh, there's a seminary that's accredited through um, Claremont Colleges um, called Bloy House. That's a little like it's a commuter school basically. It's a you know it's a Fridays and Saturdays um, seminary, yeah. um, and that's and that really works. You know, uh, two of the three most senior clergy in our diocese were trained at Bloy House and. Uh, that works pretty well. Um, for me, I needed to get out of there. I needed to experience something new and, and have, have everything start from scratch just to see if I could uh, soak up as much as I could without any boundaries or preconceived notions. So so for people who have never been to seminary, I'm sure someone listening to this might <laughs> might be uh, might be curious about it. what uh, what's seminary like in your words? Oh man. I, well, so let me, let me say this. Uh, Let me say two things. First of all, um, I went to general seminary um, in a very complicated time in its history. There were some really amazing things that were happening 
and there were some pretty rough things that were happening. They almost closed uh, at the end of my first year. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, you can read that story somewhere else. Um, uh, and so that made it a, a chaotic, but also a chaotic time, but also a time that was full of a lot of potential, um, which was fun. Uh, general seminary is also a particular seminary in the world of seminaries. Um, so, you know, your mileage may vary as they say, uh, <laughs> I experienced general and it's hard to separate general from New York as this boundless place of potential that really has some very strict expectations about how that works. Um, at least in the seminary, um, you know, it was very formal ritually. Um, and I struggled with that. Um, but the class that I came into the class that came in with me was a group of people who was really would, you know, all pretty healthy, all very excited, wide variety of ages, diverse. Um, and so they just, they sort of didn't let the the small stuff unsettle them. And they just, were voracious in their serving the seminary in their, um, you know, learning in, you know, jumping through the hoop, silly hoops that sometimes get put up, but also in just getting it done. Um, and so I experienced it a lot like a fire hose that's on all the time, whether you're awake or sleep, you know, you yeah. just like, there's always stuff coming at you. Um, and sometimes it's silly things like, you know, reflecting on why your small group and your first year student group isn't working. Um, and sometimes it's really important things like, um, you know, recognizing the deep, deep disparities and differences between the different prophets in the old Testament. Um, uh, sometimes it was embarrassing stuff. Like you got to learn how to spell the books of the Bible, right. Or you have to recognize it's the book of revelation, not the book of revelations, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> which, which, you know, as a, what was I? I was in my mid thirties at that point. And I was like, Oh man, really? I've been making that mistake all my life. Um, but that's okay. You know, you let go of ego and you grow and you learn. Um, my, my, uh, in the middle of my time there, I was elected to be the chief sacristan of the chapel, um, which at general is huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I, I need a, a little, baseball. like an airborne, yeah. uh, right. for <laughs> buzzword. <laughs> Lingo. Yeah, totally. Lingo. Um, so uh, in seminary in general, there's a group of people called the sacristans and they work in the sacristy, which is the place where all the sacred stuff is kept. And they are, they take care of laying out all the vestments and getting the readings right for every church service and making sure the candles are filled and lit and making sure that the volunteers all show up, whether they're acolytes or priests or readers or what. Um, uh, and, and they even stand in front of the chapel and greet people as they come in. It's a, it was, um, you know, it, it was basically, except for volunteering inside the church service, everything else got done by the sacristans, which was pretty fun. Um, and so to become, to help lead them was really meaningful. Um, it meant that I was basically at all 20 not all 19 of the church services every week that we did at the chapel. And I mean, I skipped a couple every week just so I could sleep once, but it was like living and breathing the life of the seminary chapel. There were some really absurd things that happened. I got into, I mean, like I got like, like 
the um the uh someone had the the preacher one day had just written a sermon on the wrong readings um because it was they had assumed that it was the that it was a normal day and it was a feast day and blah 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 or maybe vice versa i don't know and the musician had chosen chosen all of these hymns based on the other readings and so i told the musician and i mean the like the processions all lined up the church service is about to start and i told the musician like hey we're gonna just change two hymns and he like lit into me <laughs> oh, dear. And, oh no i mean like but but he really what he was really doing was lambasting his colleague which was not an uncommon thing um and uh and i just sort of sat there and was like i don't even know what's going on here because he's not mad at me <laughs> i don't know what i made this decision that was very much within my power and just okay uh and then and then in <laughs> what is what is the most crazy about face he just turned to me once he was done sort of venting and said Oh hey, uh, I wrote your I wrote your middle middler evaluation. You know your student evaluation that we're going to send to the diocese. Um, it's on my desk. I'll sign it. <laughs> like he said, this very perfectly polite, orderly thing right after that. And I thought, what? Oh, <laughs> the church is weird. Wait, the church yeah. is just full of people. Yep, yep, it is. <sighs> but you know, that's one of the things that I find about uh, about pastor parish pastoral mm. ministry is is how how quickly I have to switch hats on Sundays. Like I'll be, mm-hmm. you know, planning a funeral and then going to meet with a couple about uh, pre-marriage conversations and then uh, reading an angry email from somebody who didn't mm-hmm. like something that I said and then having a meeting about, you know, like our insurance policy and what it covers. Yeah. Just, I mean – uh, so many different hats that uh, it, it's whiplash. And so I've just discovered that I have to stay um, connected to, to the solid foundation of my prayer life and mm-hmm. scripture and the fact that Jesus loves me, even when, you know, sometimes it feels like nobody else does. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's yeah. So really that sounds true. like you had a uh, good training for that. Like the, uh, the, the whiplash. I, yeah, it was, it was certainly the beginning of the training. I'm still experiencing that. Uh, I'm someone who really loves being capable and checking things off and getting things done. And so mm-hmm. I have uh, fallen into the folly of thinking that I can take on much, many, many more sort of practical things than I need to really. Oh, yeah. um, and, and, uh, and yet I just have to calm down and spend time with people. Um, and yep. that's, uh, that's okay. You know, learning that is a good thing. Um, but it's, but it's, but it really does remind me that we are generalists, not business run owners, you know, that, yeah. that the balance sheet, you know, and as, as a scientist, I look at the, I look at the monthly budget every month and I'm like, I pour over it because it just, you know, it's interesting to me the intuitive, you know, sense of sense of numbers is really a thing for me. But that's not, that is like 5% of what I need to be doing. I still need to be okay at that. But there's so many other things like sitting with someone who just lost their job, you know, or uh, sitting with someone who just lost their kid or, you know, talking with a couple who really is excited that after divorces, they finally found the right person. Um, Hmm. You know, those are just such crazy moments. I couldn't take one of them in a day, but to stack them up four at a time or five in a row it's uh, it is there's a lot of whiplash and you just got to get strong nus- neck muscles is what you got to do 
<laughs> so you graduated seminary mm-hmm, successfully. Yeah. yeah. Made it through the general ordination exams. I, I, I did. I did not pass all of them, but I made it through somehow. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, and since then, has anyone asked how you did on your GOEs? Nobody oh, oh, no. Nobody cares. Uh, no, nobody. You, yeah. Whatever only, the bishop tells you you need to do. <laughs> to well, I think, I, you know, I don't want to say this too publicly, but um, the bishop was very attentive to me in my time in seminary. He responded to my letters and stuff like that. And I really appreciated that. He, he even sort of would once in a while ask to see a paper that I would talk about. And I'd say, oh, yeah, great. Um, he said absolutely nothing. No one at the diocese said anything to me about my GOE scores. And just for the record, that was when there were seven GOE uh, areas and I passed three of them. So <laughs> woo! the only other person who has asked about my GOE scores is uh, a friend of mine who's a GOE reader. And that's only because they're interested in what it was like for me when we, and huh. that's the once a year that we get onto that conversation about GOEs when they go off and read them. So, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it is funny. I don't know what GOEs were like for you. Were you the in intrinsic evil year? Was that uh, yeah, year? yeah, that yeah. was my year. So that was two thousand and eight, I think. Maybe yeah. Oh man, it's so like that, even I did two a, degrees. So my I did my MDiv in two thousand eight and stayed on mm-hmm. and did an MA in liturgical studies and I graduated oh, with that in two thousand ten. And I, I honestly you. can't remember when I took the GOEs. I think, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I think if, if I'm marking it right, um, remembering about who was in classes with you in our, in our circle of friends, that, that seems right. 2008 seems right. And especially yeah. the intrinsic evil typo is a, yep. is a marker. Yeah. Um, do any, does anyone ask about your GOE scores? No, no, yeah. which is kind of a shame because I did very well on them. Was, <laughs> you know, how'd you do? Well, I, I mean, I passed them all. Uh, yeah, which uh, right I'm, I'm proud of. But you should. But be. I've, I've, uh, I'm all, so now um, in this diocese and in in my previous diocese in the diocese of Kansas, I was on mm-hmm. uh, the the diocesan board of examining chaplains. So yeah. we um, have a like a, a committee of people who review the academic preparation of seminarians, including mm-hmm. looking at. GOE results and grades and things like that. Um, and so I have, I have seen how poorly the intellectual capabilities of the seminarians sometimes match up with the grades that they get uh, on the GOEs or in class. Um, and so the fact that I did really well uh, mm-hmm. I just, I take that with as much of a grain of salt as, as somebody who, who doesn't sure. pass, you know, five out of the six of them. It's yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I think uh, personally, I, I, it's my hot take. I think that, that having something like the GOEs is not a bad idea. No. So for, um, you know, maybe not everyone uh, listening kind of knows what GOEs are. They're mm. like our, our board exams. And it's uh when I took them, there were seven exams. You took them too. There were seven exams, right? I think there are six now. And so yes. for me, they were over four days and two mm-hmm. on each day. And then one of the days there was like a, the morning off and we just rested. So mm-hmm. like three and a half hours to write some essay. Um, 
and it's very grueling and very stressful, but I actually enjoyed the opportunity to kind of delve into all the stuff that I'd learned. Cause I, you know, yeah. I put a lot of effort into learning it and I liked the, the chance to see what I knew. Um, yeah, I felt the exact same way. There was a challenge to it that I really thrived on. Um, I'm someone, I'm not a very good writer, but I'm someone who can think pretty well on my feet. And so I really enjoyed, you have three hours, go! Like yeah. the adrenaline and stuff like that. Now, that said, I did. I, I made some significant mistakes and was not as prepared as I think you were. Um, but but even the even if it's play... Even if it's just like, let's see how you do. Come on. Yeah, here's some questions. Uh, what do you think? Um, there's a, yeah, there's something, there seems to be something good about that. I know it's a very, um, you know, every January, it's a very complex conversation about what people yeah. think about GOEs um, because it can be very heartbreaking in some ways. Uh, I, I know some people who really used, you know, who had one bad score out of six or one bad score out of seven used against them. Um, yeah. Because we live in a, community that is entirely human. Um, uh, but I, 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 you know, I, I found it, I found it like the hard, you know, road races that I've run, you know, challenging and exhilarating and glad to be over with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. So, so you graduated, you got ordained. Yes. Did you have any cold feet as you approach your ordination day? Oh no, 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 no. Only confirmation after confirmation. I mean, the only sort of hesitations I had were like, how can I, you know, because right for ordination, you, there's so many meetings and letters you have to write. And, and so yeah. the question was just like, okay, well, who am I meeting with now? Which ones are these? And what do I have to say to them? You know, because I, I don't think I ever calculated any responses, but I also was smart enough, I think, to know that you can't just sort of say whatever and have the standing committee sort of, you know, agree with that right you have to be a little bit thoughtful in your responses maybe is the best way to say it um uh but uh other than that there were no i i felt clear and firm in that vocation that that, that leading a church working in the church talking about jesus having a sacramental life those were really it was really in the right place um so so yeah so you were ordained by in california, in california. yep but you wound up in Florida. <laughs> yeah. How's that yes. work? Um, I called the Bay Area. You know, I called the Diocese of California and was like, hey, uh, here we are right after the GOEs in 2012. Uh, you guys have the first call on me. You've told me that, you know, if you can, you'd like to bring me back. What does that look like? And they did not have anything for me. You know, they, they, there were some possibilities that might come up if you just hang on and stuff like that. I think they were really earnest in wanting me back, as I think they are with all their seminarians. Um, but, you know, the Episcopal Church is not a place where there are 500 openings for 200 people. Um, and so fairly quickly, the, the diocese was like, you know, go look around and see what you can find. Um, and boy... My friends and I had a chart of every single church that we knew that was open and, and even had some asterisks by one where it was like, you know, that's a better fit for you than it is for me. Why don't you apply there? And I promise I won't stuff like that. Um, and um, a friend of mine 
had seen this church in Jacksonville in Ponte Vedra and been really excited about it. And, and then after learning about it, sort of found it, maybe it wasn't going to be a great fit for a couple of reasons. And so he said, you know, this Greg Brown guy, you might really like him. And so I interviewed and, and you know, found a, a beautiful, flourishing community um, there that, that I really liked and that really liked me. Um, uh, you know, they needed someone to help them with some education stuff. They needed someone to help them with some, with some liturgy stuff. Um, but I also needed a place, uh, I realized as I got there, where I could just practice being an ordained minister. Um, Christ, Christ Church in Ponte Vedra is an enormous church. It's 6,000 members or something like that. Wow. Um, it has 10 services throughout the week um, in, uh, on three different campuses. It's really five different campuses. Um, uh, there were six priests when I started. Uh, and, and a great part about that is that with a few exceptions, no one looked twice at me and thought, well, you know, you're, it's pretty new. They were like, I don't know. Someone's got to go to the hospital today. Go. And so I had to spend like every week I spent a day in the hospital. Every week I got to teach most weeks. I got to teach a class. Most weeks I preached somewhere, some win. Um, and sometimes it was like one of those, if five minutes to prepare, just go talk about something. And sometimes it was like there are 500 people give a good sermon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so like, or, or like, you know, this is again, inside baseball, but um Jim Cooper, who was the rector of Trinity Wall Street at the time, had been the one who had helped Christ Church Montevideo grow from 1,000 to 6,000. Um, and so the first, uh, well, the only year that I was in, at Christ Church, uh, because I wasn't going home for Thanksgiving, they just asked me to preach the Wednesday night service before Thanksgiving Day. And I get there and I, it, it was not, I had not prepared a great sermon and prepared maybe even gives you the, a much stronger idea than what really happened. <laughs> and, and I, uh, you know, there's 12 people in this church and I walk in and I start, I, you know, read the gospel and I step up to preach and I look and Jim Cooper, the rector of, of, of Trinity wall street is sitting right there. And I think, Oh man, I'm going to preach this terrible sermon in front of this guy who was like, powerful what what am i doing um but but short of those moments it was just so busy that i had to always you know be doing stuff um and i had to develop a good style for being present in a pastoral visit in a hospital and i had to figure out my voice as a preacher and my preparation style and i had to um you know, figure out what was interesting to teach people in adult ed classes and how to engage them. If it was five people versus if it was 50 people. Um, and so it was, and I'd never lived in the South before and uh, you know, I was right by the beach, which wasn't bad. And so it was, it was pretty fun. And the only bummer was that I didn't know anybody else. And so I just was doing church all the time. Um, but it was, it was a stupendous way to enter ordained life um, to have enough people around to look at me and say, Hey, well, you know, is everything okay? But to not have anybody to not have some hazing or some like, you know, lack of trust because of how I knew I was or anything like that. It just was as bad, you know, as boundless as I wanted it to be is what it felt like. So it was a lot of fun. So it felt like you'd made the right, uh, the, the right decision seeing it through. Yeah, it really did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it felt like everything was clicking. 
it felt like, um, you know, I really stepped into mostly a good voice in preaching, you know, like, like there was some good, yeah, there's good stuff coming out of that. Um, yeah. And, and it felt like the vocation was a good fit too, that it was, this was real, this was good. So, so how did you sense yourself changing in terms of mm-hmm. your own authority, your self-identity, how you see yourself through how others see you, if that makes sense? Uh, your your sense of yourself as a public persona, because clergy are mm-hmm. uh, big projection screens that walk around and people kind of project all sorts of stuff on us. Well, mm-hmm. so... I, in Jacksonville, when I worked there, right, Jacksonville is in the South and I'm from the West Coast and I know the South, my, you know, my great grandparents are from there and have visited there enough, but I had never lived there. And so what I experienced initially was that parents would tell their, would insist on having their kids call me, you know, Father Greg or Mr. Greg or, or things like that. Like, but there was this, this sort of formality and this sort of, um, you know, they they were being polite to me. And I, I sort of was like, why, what are you doing? And so I thought it was quaint. Um, and so that public persona, I I remember one time someone invited me from the nearby rest home, uh, retirement facility. Someone invited me to lunch. And one of my coworkers was like, if you're going there, you got to wear a jacket, man, you know, you got to wear a suit coat. So I showed up and I realized that I was having this interesting conversation with this parishioner, but that really she was displaying having lunch with me. <laughs> and, yes. and I sort of was like, what, what is this? Um, and, and, you know, she had, she had delightful pastoral concerns that we, that were important to talk about, but there was something else going on too. And, um, and I, and I, and I, I think that public persona idea didn't I just didn't get it in that first year? A because I was so busy, and B because the culture of the South is so different from where I am from, and so I chalked a lot of it up to this quaint Southern genteelness, which some of it was, but much of it was not. It was just couched in that beautiful, you know, genteel, polite pleasantness of the South. It was the same thing. It happens everywhere. It's just that you know it looked different to me, and I just didn't. It didn't connect. I didn't connect with it. Um, it did. It, it didn't ever become a problem for me there. So luckily, but uh, but it took me longer to learn that to learn that public persona thing. So then you wound up in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Too much humidity in in Florida. Well, um, <laughs> you know, no no personal life in Florida. And yeah. right before graduating seminary, I had started to date another seminarian. Um, who was from Los Angeles. And when a year later she got a job in LA, I was like, well, let's see. Um, and was able to find another really great church to work at in Hermosa beach um, where I spent two years being a formation, you know, the priest in charge of formation and two more years being the priest in charge of pastoral care and stuff like that. So um, it was a lot of fun and kind of like what we were talking about earlier with seminaries it was fun to continue this adventure of leaving home and seeing this new world in New York and seeing this new world in the South and then seeing this new, but very familiar world in LA. LA is very different from Oakland and yet it's very similar too. And so it was sort of nice to come to something familiar, but still have to figure out where the good um, restaurants are and 
you know, how you navigate getting from here to there and, and stuff like that. So it was a good adventure. And Hermosa Beach is very different from Ventura County. It is. It is. It is. Hermosa Beach is part of uh, is a part of L.A. that's really been booming over the last maybe 10 years. It's not very close to a freeway for, you know, for L.A. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, it's a little harder to get to. But with property prices and everything like that, for a long time, it was a sort of hidden gem. Now people have realized how great the, the South Bay is. Uh, Palos Verdes and Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach. Um, and so they're willing to drive 10 or 15 minutes to get to a freeway, but live by the beach and have this just glorious, beauteous place. It's sort of like, it's basically if, um, if Santa Monica is great on the north side of the, of, of the airport of LAX, this is the south side of the airport that no one wants to go to because it's just a little too far. And so it's the same sort of beautiful curving beach line, um, great ocean, you know, good culture. So it's fun. And, and the church, St. Cross, it was a pretty thriving, vibrant church too. Um, you know, it was fun to, to find a preaching voice in a new congregation. It was fun to find a pastoral sensitivity in a new congregation, fun to build relationships around formation and, and stuff too. Um, and if anything, it was just sort of, you know, recognizing that a calling towards ordination, that a vocation uh, persists through different parishes, but maybe shifts and changes and asked to different tasks and different relationships. So So what is the greatest joy in your calling? And then after that, what's the hardest part? (sighs) I, I'm going to, I'm going to give two answers. Um, one of the greatest joys in my calling, and I'm sure other people have said this is the ability to be present with people at their greatest and their worst moments in their lives that, you know, in health crises, um, in deaths, but also in births in new life in new, new relationships that, 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 um, that I can just stand in the room with them. Um, and, and have some familiarity. I really appreciate being able to comfort people whose loved one has died by saying, Hey, you may not know about a lot about this process, but I've been here before. And I just want to reassure you that it's going to be okay. And that I'll walk with you through this. You know, that, that, that really, I, I, I appreciate the ability to be able to say that the other greatest joy, and this might even be first on the list is that moment in preaching when the word leaves your lips and everyone, including you, resonates with it. That there's this gasp or this, you know, something that, that everyone is looking at God at the same time. And it's not to say that I say something and suddenly God is there. And it's not to say that I reveal God or anything like that. But it is to say that there's something wonderful about being a preacher where the whole room is standing there with you trying to figure it out. Um, that's one of my greatest moments and and I wish it I wish it happened more. <laughs> um and then hardest parts. Um you know the people dying is is tough. Um uh preaching bad sermons is also tough um because you get out and you're like oh how could I how could I not do that? How could I not be prepared or, or whatever? How could I 
how can I miss connecting with these people who, who just are so hungry? Um, but I also think the hardest, but maybe the hardest, hardest part is, um, you know, like, like we were saying, trying to figure out which way to turn your head when whiplash, when you're starting to get whiplash to remember, you know, my specific hardest part is trying to remember that responding to 10 emails, uh, about property is never as important as calling someone back about a problem they're having, you know, in their lives that sitting and having lunch with someone is always more important than, um, meeting with someone to make sure the paint color is correct. Um, and it's not to say that the paint color being correct isn't important. It's just to say that the relationships are what makes this work. You know, if, if Trinitarian, Trinitarian theology tells us that God is about relationship, we should know that church is about relationship too. And I, and I, and I struggle to remember that sometimes. So. Hmm. Hmm. What helps you to remember? You know, being being centered, you know, being being in an active prayer life, being grounded, but also the the little sparks of joy when I sit down with someone and, and really connect with them pastorally, you know, the, the wonderful stories they share with me, um, you know, the full life that comes across. Um, that's that that deep intimacy is is also reorients me and it's like, oh, I gotta do this more often, you know. <laughs> So what advice do you have for someone who's considering following in your footsteps? If there are any chemists out there who are thinking uh, it's time to try seminary. Time to try seminary. (laughs) Um, You know, say your prayers. Definitely, you know, Mm. sit with, sit with God all the time. Um, There's nothing that can replace that being that kind of groundedness. And it gets worse if you're not grounded. Um, It gets harder. Um, Yeah you know, listen, have other people around you who can reflect back to you what they see in you. Um, a friend of mine just, just two weeks ago reflected back something to me about, about, uh, something hard that I had been through a couple of years ago. And I sort of was talking about it like, well, that's all over. Don't need to think about it anymore. And she was like, no, 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 you don't see this and this and this and how it's so active in your life still. And just having people who can, who can, you know, discern with you and keep you healthy really is rich. Um, you know, and in, in some ways seminary is a great source of that because you build these relationships with people that you hope will, a couple of them will last for a long time. Um, but if it's not seminary, it's gotta be some other way. There's gotta be a group of people around you that, that you, you can commit to and they can commit to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, uh, and, and then the GOE advice, maybe the, the sort of like, you know, take it seriously and work really hard, but also don't worry about it too much. Um, it's going to, you know, it's going to work out. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the, the, the experience of going through the GOEs was, was uh, like one of several things that happened in seminary, like every class, every paper that I wrote, every <laughs> class that I took, it's all good preparation for the day in, day out, uh, week in, week out experience of, writing sermons, like they're very mm-hmm. public things and we spend a lot of time pr- preparing them and uh, we really have very little control over how they're received. Totally. And then it's time to get to work on next week's sermon. Yeah. Like yeah, there's exactly. just always, always another ne- sermon. <laughs> and there's never feedback. There's never someone saying, you know, I felt like the second act just wasn't as strong as the first act or something like yeah. that. Um, yeah. Which, which I don't know if I would want, but, but at least in an honest setting would be, would help me grow. 
Um, I think also what I found, what I have found the GOEs, and this is sort of particular to my gifts, what I have found the GOEs prepared me for too was, you know, in the middle of Episcopal 101, when someone says, you know, well, I don't understand, you know, like, wasn't the Elizabethan compromise just like a settlement on where the middle ground was? And you just take the average, you know, like, ooh, uh, two minutes, uh, 600 words. Uh, okay. So the Elizabethan compromise actually was, <laughs> right? Right. And, yeah. and it's not that, it's not that I have to have the answer. You know, I, I look a lot of stuff up. Um, at, at least every other week in our weekly Bible study, there's this guy, this wonderful guy, Bob, who's in our Bible study. He knows the Bible so much better than I do. And he's like, well, what do you think about this word? What do you think about that? And I am like, oh, Bob, I've got to look that up. I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, like, I, there's nothing wrong with that. But being able to sort of have the story of our faith in your head well enough. And again, this is, this is sort of who I am to be able to answer a quick question in a way that inspires someone and offers them hope and gives them hopefully mostly right information. Like there's something about the GOEs that helped me get into that groove of like, all right, I'll answer another one. Great. Yeah. The civil war and biblical foundations. I can figure that out. Sure. Right. You know, um, uh, what was that? Oh, one of the, I, I, I really like looking at GOE questions from the past. In fact, I find them good adult ed. If you've, you know, there's, there's usually oh, wow. a couple of, yeah. Well, cause what's that? You, you pose a question to a group of people and you chew on it together. I mean, that's just doing theology. That's all you're doing is helping people train themselves to do good theology out in the world, to make good decisions about how their faith lives work. So there was a question a couple, three or four years ago. I think it was a theology question that went something like this. Um, the Episcopal Church, you know, the Episcopal Church looks to its uh, public worship as a source of theology. Um, you know, in all of the Eucharistic prayers in the Book of Common Prayer, the institution narrative has Jesus saying, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Blah, 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 right? Uh, in Enriching Our Worship, uh, all of the Eucharistic prayers have the institution narrative ha- say, on the night before he died, Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is said for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. And the question is discuss universalism versus particularism. You know, like there's, there's some, you know, wonky theological words that get pulled in, in the GOE question, but everyone's worried in, I mean, like everyone is worried about whether they're right or wrong about whether there's a line that God draws, right? And so if, and I'm, you know, I, I, have, I have some opinions and I have some theological foundations, but I would much rather have someone wrestle with that question and ask like, well, what do, what do you think about this? Because then they're sort of training themselves theologically um, and they're building a deeper theological, a broader language to speak with God. Um, you know, in the end, I think we'll figure, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously, you know, when you count things like communion with all the communion of all the communion without baptism and things like that, or I'm sorry, open communion, whichever one you want to call it. Um, you know, there obviously there's some real theological divides to kind of wrestle with, but it is an interesting question to wonder why in our prayer book, it says some things one way and some things a different way. And what that can tell us about God. And so like a question like that, that's really meaty and allows people some latitude to kind of try things on and wrestle 
really becomes this uh, place where they can realize things about their faith. Um, and maybe they realize something and five years later, they're like, nope, nope, that was wrong. It's really this way. And that's fine because they're growing. But, um, but all that is to say that GOE questions, I think, end up being wonderful places for people to do two-minute conversations or five-minute conversations, which I think is what most of my life is with people. You know, we just have these, we have these long conversations about their pastoral life, and every once in a while, some theological point lops, jumps up, and they have a question or ask them a question, and there's a discrete 600-word theological answer. And, and, and I, you know, that's a good thing, I think. Yeah. All right. So the final fun question, which is, do you have a recommendation for a book or a movie or some <laughs> kind of music or a video yeah. game or some sure. popular oh. culture that will help us blow some steam on the weekend? What yeah. Do you want to? Well, so I'll, uh, I will offer you, Oh man, I told myself I wasn't going to do more than one, but I will offer you four things. Four and things. They'll be quick. Right. Four things. I don't know. Okay. I mean, this is already so long. You're going to edit about it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, first thing I would offer you is The Good Place. And I'm sure someone's already said that before. The Good nope. Place is a... No, no one said that? Oh man. Nope. So The You're Good the Place first. is like, really? Come on, man. The Good Place is like... Um, saying you're going to not talk about church and then having and then sort of reading about the Methodist church or something like that, right? Like it's, it's sort of cheating a little bit as in terms of moving outside of our realm because it's so much about theology and philosophy, but it's so well-written and it's so kind um, that I, that I really, I really like it a lot. Um, the second one, that's really a pair. My wife and I have been watching Superstore and Brooklyn Nine-Nine back-to-back uh, most nights for the last few months, hmm. um, which, which is like, they're both silly comedies. Um, you know, one set in a box store and the other set in a, you know, in a Brooklyn precinct and they, they uh, don't take themselves too seriously. And yet they also comment, especially superstore comments on bigger things. Uh, and they're just fun to like laugh at. And, you know, there's plenty of time to not laugh these days. Um, and the fourth, yeah, yeah, I would say it. The fourth one I would say is Blue Bloods, which is a cops and robbers show um, where the commissioner. It's got it's, Tom Selleck in it, right? It's got Tom Selleck yeah. in it and, and uh, uh, Donnie Wahlberg um, uh, and, and a couple of other people too. Um, what I, and, and, you know, it's a fairly conservative uh, philosophically, politically. It's certainly, you know, towards the law and order side of things. Um, but they really focus here and there on moments of faith, on moments of redemption, and especially on moments of like national conversation, like how are we going to work this out? We've got to decide right from wrong and we've got to do it together. Um, you know, in the later seasons, they become a little more polemic, but they always get the, they often always get the bad guy. And, uh, I can't believe I said that that way. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the mystery gets solved at the end, right? Yeah. Um, but they, but, but there's also, you know, always some interesting, you know, national, national, uh, national philosophy conversation that I, th- that I find interesting for, from a group of people who are, are not very similar to me. Um, uh, and, you know, 
Donnie Wahlberg is looks like a tough cop, and so I believe him, right? And Tom Selleck yeah. looks like a tough cop, so there's that too. He certainly got a very impressive mustache. That mustache is not messing around, man. <laughs> not messing around. What What are you watching these days? What are you doing these days? Well, we just decided uh, a few months ago to go back and rewatch Psych. Yes. Uh, oh my God! A, yes. <laughs> it's such a like a purely Gen X experience, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's fun. And you know, in the middle of the winter, you don't want anything too serious. All right, Greg, we have talked oh, for Chris. an awfully long time. Yes. Uh, it's Thank good to catch up with you. Me. Thank you for sharing you your too. story. I was glad from, to. Um, from chemistry to uh, to the priesthood from yeah. uh, the Bay Area to New York to Florida to Southern California. Yep. It's a, it's a, it's a journey, man. It's a journey. It I mean, is. your journey is no less interesting. Um, yeah. But, but I appreciate your asking the questions and, and blessings to your friend. I hope that it's a great journey to learn people's stories of vocation. Well, thank you again for listening to my conversation with Greg. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with him, be sure to look in the show notes for a link to his church, the Church of the Epiphany in Oak Park, California, and there's ways to get in contact with him there. To get in contact with me, you can find me on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods, and we have a Facebook page that is at Apple Tree Podcasts. So if you just search for that, Uh, you can find the page. And as you do uh, with every podcast that there is out there, feel free to like and subscribe and review and rate and share this podcast or this episode with anyone who might be interested. The intro music is called Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing now is called St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Both of these are available for purchase and download at Audio Jungle. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.